text. It's really quite remarkable. Boys and girls, I'm going to tell you about Jacob. And he does not look like that. Come on, here he goes. Jacob was the father. And he had a favourite son who was called Joseph. And when Joseph was about 17, things started to go wrong. He was a dreamer. And because he was his father's favourite, and because his dreams had meanings, and his meaning didn't always appeal to his brother, because he, he dreamed that his brothers would bow down to him, not surprisingly, they didn't like this, and they were so angry that they wanted to kill him. One day the opportunity arose. He was sent out a message to them where they were working. And they decided that they were going to kill him. But Reuben, the oldest brother, said, no, no, we can't do that. And so as a kind of compromise, he agreed that Joseph could be put in a hole in the ground and kept there until they decided what they were going to do. But when Reuben was away, the other brothers took a golden opportunity that came along. A group of slave traders came along. And they thought, the very way, we'll get rid of him here. And so they sold their brother to this slave trader. And the slave traders took him to Egypt. And there he would be in the market. And there people would poke him and prod him and see how strong he looked and all that sort of thing. And this was Joseph, remember, the favourite son of Jacob. And eventually he was sold to a man called Potiphar. Now I'm sure Potiphar didn't look like that, okay? But he was sold to a man called Potiphar. He did very well there. He worked very hard. And eventually, he was put in charge of everything that Potiphar had. The Bible tells us that everything Joseph did went well. And so Potiphar became rich. And because he became rich, he thought, this is a good man. I'm going to put him in charge of everything. The Bible also tells us, in Genesis chapter 39, verse 6, that Joseph was well built, a handsome chap. Now the Bible doesn't very often tell us very much about what people look like. So this must have been quite significant. If you think about it for a moment, we have no idea really what Jesus looked like. We don't know whether he was tall or short. We don't even really know for certain what colour his skin was. But here we're told something about this man. He was well built, it says, and he was handsome. Potiphar's wife took a fancy to Joseph. And really... And I'm sure she didn't look like that either. And really what she tried to persuade him to do was just completely wrong. But he refused. He said no. And she kept on and kept on trying to persuade him to do things that were wrong. And eventually, because he kept refusing, she told lies about him. And Potiphar, the husband, believed her. And he was a powerful man. And Joseph finished up in jail for something that he'd never done because somebody was telling lies. And so came the next phase of Joseph's life. He was put in jail and yet everything he did went well. And when he was in jail, 
it became obvious that this was a special kind of man. And so he was put in charge in the jail. And so he found himself doing tasks, looking after things in the jail. The Bible says, the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in everything that he did. Once again, dreams became an important part of David's life, David's life, Joseph's life. He interpreted the dreams of others. Some of the prisoners had dreams and they went to him and said, what does this mean? And he told them. And the things came true. And if you'd like to read the detail of that, then read it in Genesis. Two whole years went by. He was in jail for at least two years. Pharaoh had some dreams. The dreams that we read about earlier on. And nobody knew what they meant, but somebody remembered. Remember, there was this guy, when I was in jail, there was this guy who could tell dreams, tell what they meant, and they came true. And so it was that Pharaoh sent for Joseph. He was cleaned up. Prisons in those days wouldn't be very nice places at all, so he was cleaned up, given a bath, a shave. In those days, the Egyptians were probably clean-shaven people, so he was made to look like the rest of them, cleaned up, given a jolly good bath, and... Um, as we read earlier, he managed to explain to Pharaoh what his dreams were about. And so it was that straight from prison, Joseph was once again in the limelight. And once again, very quickly was put in charge. This time of the whole of Egypt. Now this was quite remarkable. Here was this guy, one day, in jail, forgotten about basically. And very quickly afterwards, he was in charge of the whole country of Egypt. Thirteen years had passed since his brothers had sold him. This wasn't something sudden. He'd been a slave for a long time. He'd been in jail for a while. He had several amazing ups and downs in his life. But through it all, he stayed close to God. And God honoured that. And so it was that Joseph was seen as a wise person. So it was that he organised the country to cope with this famine that was coming along. And once again... He was very successful. And I'd like to think for a few minutes about this wisdom and this success. And so I want to talk to you about the wisdom of Joseph and there's four wee things that I'd like to think about. First of all, he recognised the work of God. In everything he did, Joseph was aware of the hand of God. In everything that he did, he recognised that God was there. When he got up in the morning... When he walked along the way, when times were hard, when times were good, Joseph was aware of God's presence. God was Joseph's constant companion. He was with him all the time. He was aware of him all the time. Now, I have a driving problem, okay? I basically drive too fast. And yet, when I have a companion, I'm much more circumspect. A companion kind of tells, oh, no, right, slow down. Wait a minute, you don't, etc. A companion supports you. A companion warns you. A companion points things out to you. And you're enriched by having a companion. That's what a marriage is about. A marriage is, in essence, about companionship. And my wife is my companion, my best friend. And so it was with God and with Joseph. When he went home, God was there. When he was a slave, God was there. When he was running Potiphar's house, God was there. So no wonder he did it well. When he was being tempted, God helped him. He knew that God was there. When he was in prison, he just knew that it was okay because God was there. 
And so now when he was asked to interpret these dreams, he recognised the hand of God. He just knew it was God at work. He knew it was God speaking. And so he was able to explain the dream. And he gave God the credit. He didn't say, I know, don't worry, I've got it. He said, God will explain it. Because he knew that it was God that was showing him to show God. The two dreams were the same story. He knew it was important. He knew it was urgent. He knew the mind of God. Why? Because he was his constant companion. He just knew. Now, I'm not a musician, and I don't suppose I ever will be. But I watch people who are. And they're kind of welded to their instruments. You know, everywhere they go, this thing is kind of clamped on. And that's why they become good at it. Now, that's okay if you've got a violin or something. But I always feel sorry for Steve, who plays double bass, you know. Because he's kind of got that all the time. You see him on buses and things with it. And it's the same with being a Christian, really. Sometimes it's actually quite awkward being a Christian, kind of having God as your companion. It kind of sticks out a mile, and it can be really quite difficult. But that's what Joseph did. He just stuck with God the whole time. A few years ago, I met a man who lived his life in Soviet Russia. He was an art teacher, I seem to recall. He'd lost his job several times. He'd been passed over for promotion several times. Why? Because he was a Christian and because he told people he was a Christian. They knew he was, and so they gave him a bad time. I heard of two young men in a school in Edinburgh, close to home. They were good pupils. It was a school who had a prefect system. One of the two was particularly sporty. They were decent guys. Yet they were never given honours in their school. And they didn't know why, and in fact they hardly noticed. And it wasn't until many years later that they discovered that one of the teachers disliked them, indeed hated them, because they were Christians. And that's the sort of thing that can happen. I wonder how we would feel if a teacher in the congregation was sacked for standing up as a Christian. Would we say, what a stupid person, they've done it wrong. They should have kept the rules. Or would we see them as just an extremist? Or would we congratulate the person and kind of see them as a hero? Joseph knew what this sort of thing was all about. Potiphar's wife enticed him. Maybe he wasn't tempted. We don't know. But he said no. And there were serious consequences. So the first challenge from Joseph is, do I, do we, do we all recognize God in every part of our lives? Or is it just in most of it when it's convenient? Or just some of it? Or at least not when I'm at work? Or not when I'm enjoying myself? The point is that Joseph recognized God the whole time. The second thing was he focused on the work of God. Because God was his constant companion, he saw God's hand in the dreams, he instantly recognized God at work, it was obvious to him. The fact that there were two similar dreams made it clear that the matter was urgent and important, obviously. Well, it was obvious to him. It wasn't obvious to me when I read the story, but it was obvious to him. Because he knew the mind of God. Why? Because God was with him the whole time. And in verse 16, as we've seen already, he gave God the credit. 
And my question is, do we do that? Because he focused on God, other people focused on God. In verse 38 of the reading that we had this morning, Pharaoh says, can we find anyone like this man? One in whom is the Spirit of God. Joseph, we say, was winsome. Joseph was highly esteemed. And that was because people could see God in him. Even if they didn't quite know what it was, they could see that there was something different about this man. He was a special man. He was a different man. As we listen to testimonies in a Baptist church, you know, we hear testimonies quite often from people who are being baptized. And in other places too, we hear people telling about their Christian lives. And really, I rarely hear people saying, I had a great sermon and I decided that I needed to follow Jesus. Much more often people say something like, I was a student in a flat and there was this guy in the flat and there was just something about him. Or I met this person and I couldn't quite work out what the difference was. There was something there and I wanted that for myself. And that's how we should preach sermons. That's how we should be living our lives. Not many people get to stand here. I never quite work out why I do, but there we go. Even fewer people do it well. We need to be telling people about Jesus. And where are these people that we need to be telling? Well, they're not in here. Some of them may be, but most of them are out there. The trouble is that we sit in here and we feel it comfortable in here. We feel safe in here. It's easy to be a Christian in here. But the people who need to hear are out there somewhere. They are getting messages, all sorts of messages all the time. I don't know what your attitude is to much of the stuff that's on TV. I have to say I just switch off, switch over, find something else, switch off. But maybe from time to time you should just watch it. Because that's what the world is watching. That's where they're getting their messages from. From the TV and from papers. And whether you like it or not, the tabloids are much, much more popular than these great big things that you've got to lie on the floor to read. That's where people are getting their messages from. And I think we need to be aware of that. And I think sometimes we close ourselves off and we lose sight of that fact. Much of it is just downright immoral. A lot of it is based on worthless things, like money and houses and sex and fun and noise. Trouble is, our message is often just shut in a building like this. So how do we preach to these people? Well, by the way we live. People could tell that Joseph was different. And the challenge is, can they tell that I'm different? Can they tell that you're different? Or are we making excuses for looking like everybody else? Oh, I can bear a good testimony in that kind of area. It's the old question, you know, it's a bit of a cliche kind of question, but if it were a crime to be a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict me? And really that's the question. That's the challenge of Joseph's life. Thirdly, Joseph accepted the work of God. He accepted it. We don't hear Joseph complaining. We don't see him compromising. Instead, he accepts that God is in charge. He accepts that God is sovereign. He accepts that God doesn't make mistakes. He accepts that God does have a plan. He doesn't particularly understand it, 
I'm sure when he found himself um, being dragged along behind a camel tied to a piece of rope or something by these slave traders, he'd be going, what is going on here? I'm sure that he found it quite hard to see God's plan when he was in a filthy and dark prison. And yet all these times, he seemed to hang on in there. And that's what we need to do when times are hard. And times are hard from time to time. We have good times and we have bad times. And we need to hang on there. We all believe that God is in control. Christian people believe that. We kind of know that. Sure we do. But how about when you fail all your exams? You thought, I'm going to pass my exams, I'm going to move on to the next thing. You get to the end of the first year and you failed everything and you're out the door. Or how about when something awful happens in your life? Perhaps that you didn't expect, or you expected it anyway, but it was still awful. How about when the path you just knew that God was leading you down suddenly comes to an end or is closed? Or how about when you can't see the path at all? Then it's really about hanging on. It's like Joseph in prison. I am sure he didn't know what was coming the next day. Like a child hanging on to its mother's apron. You just hang on. And the question is, is that me? Is that how we do things when things are hard? Or do we complain? And do we compromise? How about when we want to do something and it's just wrong? The Bible is quite clear that such and such a thing is wrong and yet you want to do it. And you're so determined to do it that you kind of start to judge the Bible rather than let the Bible judge you. We try to find ways around it. We go, do you say, I actually mean this. I mean, really? Um, And we look for hard... Uh, we look for excuses. And we ask the question, well, why should I be anyway? And so we find lots of people, lots of parts of the church, lots of parts of the Christian church, ignoring the teaching of the Bible. Like kind of tearing out pages. Uh, the pages they don't like, to whoosh, chuck them out, or squirt them out or something. A pair of scissors. And then the problem becomes, well, which pages do I tear out and which pages do I keep in? And whose opinion are you going to follow? Much more in our Christian living. If we compromise a little bit here and a little bit there, maybe chucking out whole bits, but just ignoring the wee bits, it's where the problem starts. Joseph accepted the work of God completely, entirely. And so had a worthwhile and valuable life. Trouble is, I've come to the conclusion a lot of people, including myself, we just settle for a little happiness. You know, we live in a society where there's this celebrity thing going on. There's this winning thing. You know, and we kind of chuck people out one at a time and they can make 20 programs out of it and stuff like that. And it's all about winning. And it's a sad com- uh, part of our um, culture that people want to be winning. They want to be famous. And that becomes so, so empty. It's really a very sad thing. I reckon though, outside our kind of society where this has become the way to go, that large numbers of people would just settle for a bit of peace and quiet. A bit of stability. A bit of tomorrow will be okay and being sure about it. And the point is that it doesn't matter which kind of part of society you're in, real happiness, real joy, comes from accepting that God is sovereign. And actually, it's much better than just happiness. It's a kind of release from pressure. Accepting that he's in charge and just hanging on in there. 
And there's no guarantee of a quiet life. Joseph finished up in prison, finished up as a slave. But he did have an inner contentment because he accepted the work of God. And finally, he prepared for the work of God. There's an excellent book by Alistair Begg um, called The Hand of God. Um, And in it, he points out that Joseph had the land of Egypt prepare for famine, prepare for the bad times, and so we should prepare for the bad times, prepare for the famine. During the bad times, you can't do all sorts of things. But during the good times, you can get ready for the hard times. It's like being a Boy Scout and being prepared. We live in good times. We suffer very little persecution, although there is definitely some. We can buy Bibles freely. We can come here freely without any concern that somebody's going to arrive at these doors with guns and things. We're not being jailed for being, prison, for being Christians. The question is, if that day comes, will we be ready? We can't assume that things always will be the way they are. Perhaps not quite as dramatic as that, just things getting very hard in your life for one reason or another. And the question is, are we ready for the future? What about when life ends itself? Are we ready for that? This is a family service. And we're thanking God for the good harvest, for the, cat, for the fat cattle, for the good grain. It will not always be so. The famine will come. And will we cope? Are we ready? If not, then it's probably not too late. But we need to get to work. We need to have a plan. We need to be serious about this. I think a lot of us aren't really particularly serious about our Christian living. If you come here regularly, you hear a lot of good teaching. The question is, how much of it do we actually apply in our daily living? If the answer is not a lot, and I suspect it is for many of us, then what a waste of time. You'd be much better watching watching TV or walking or whatever it is that you do. Or are you like Joseph? I believe very few of us really are, including myself. I believe most of us compromise when we have to. Most of us, that's most of us in here, not these other people, us. Sure, we're very nice people. We're very Christian. We never say boo to a goose. We never really offend people very much. We never get very aggressive. We have lots of nice things in our lives. We spend our money on wholesome things. We have lovely holidays. We go to church a lot. We uh, do good stuff. And um, after all, that's what nice people do. But don't ask us to do anything. No way am I going to get sacked from my faith. No way will I ever finish up in prison. But the point is, Scotland is still in darkness. It's a dark country. And we need to stop kind of cruising, if you like, and start getting down to some work. Joseph's life wasn't a waste. And the challenge is, where do I stand in that? The wisdom of Joseph is the wisdom of harvesting. Making hay while the sun shines, if you like. In the good times. Preparing for the hard times. Getting ready. And the question is, really the challenge is, are we going to do that? Or are we not? We're going to finish off with a hymn. It's number 764. 
It's who is on the Lord's side, who will serve the king. And it's not just a sort of glorious, something good hymn. 